There's a whole financial world out there that fortune and freedom does not cover. And today I've asked my friend Jasmine Bertels from moneymagpie.com to help put that right. Jasmine, it's good to see you again with our roles reversed. I'm interviewing you this time. Can you explain to us how your focus at Money Magpie is more on what I would call the micro? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we cover, I suppose, a, a holistic approach to, to money. Um, I set Money Magpie up back in 2007, 2008. Um, and at that time, there really weren't that many money sites around other than sites like The Motley Fool that dealt with you know, investing and then there was money saving, but there was nothing that, my view, covered an holistic um, approach to money that looked at money saving and money making because I've been freelance all of my life um, and I've done all sorts of things and I have a lot of friends who are freelance and they're actors, uh, they're writers, whatever. And everyone, including me, has a little bit of um, a side earner to supplement their normal income. And there were, there were no articles, that, well, yes, there were no articles, no websites around that covered that part of earning a bit of extra as well as saving and investing. So that's, that's the way I see Money Magpie. We sort of cover the whole base um, and go, look, you know, it's about saving your money, but you can also make a bit of extra. And by the way, with this extra or with what you've saved, you can be putting it into investments and make yourself a really nice pile of money later on. So it's sort of threefold, really. Yeah, those are the three focuses, the saving, the making and the managing that are on the website under the three tabs. But what I really noticed about it when I went and researched your site was it, there was sort of a very direct, practical, you know, specific. I think specifics is, is the key word for, you know, real examples of what you can do and how to do it rather than, you know, something abstract or, or indirect or, you know, some people do this. It was It was much more. And that's what makes it engaging as well as these specific ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Because again, you know, I I don't have time to to mess around in, in my life. I'd like to know what is it? How much can I make from it? How do I do it? Can I do it now? <laughs> that's what I want to know. So I kind of feel that's what everybody else wants to know. Um, and we we are really keen. We try, try, try to put it in normal writing, normal words that normal people can understand and, and not use things like, you know, words like have exposure to this in the market, you know, the way the city boys talk and just say, look, you know, mortgages, finding the right mortgages, like finding the right tin of baked beans. You just sort of see what, what is it that you want? Which, which is the cheapest version? Fine, go for that, you know. So, so sort of put it in normal language that normal people can understand. And you also help people figure out what parts of the website are most relevant to them by having different segments of, of you know, different types of people, the unemployed, over 50 students, so on, so on and so forth, which I thought it's really helpful. But let's move on to sort of the state of the UK's individuals in terms of their financials. I noticed there was an article on your site. It was about the Great British Retirement Survey of 2021, and it had some surprises in there, such as half of people, slightly more than half of people, believe that their state pension won't be there for them by the time they retire. Uh, most people uh, suggested that they'd become wealthier during the pandemic, and a majority plan to find alternative income sources, as you just uh, just mentioned that you have. So there seems to be a lot going on. What's your, your take of, of you know, the main trends? Well, certainly the, the last 18 months has seen an increased polarisation between the haves and the have-nots. In fact, I think it was the Re Resolution Foundation that, that found that the top 10% of people in this country, and I'm sure it's the same in America and you know, other parts of Europe, 
um, the top 10% actually increased their, their wealth by a, a significant amount. In this country, it's by 50,000 pounds, whereas the poorest um, made 87 pence. So, you know, already we were seeing a, a parting of the ways. 2008 was not good for equality. Quantitative easing started then in, in earnest, as you know, it's continued over the last 18 months. It has gone ballistic. And that has meant an increased polarization between the haves and the have nots. So that's certainly one, one thing. Um, you know, having said that, as you say, a lot of people, you know, middle earners actually did quite nicely over the last 18 months. As long as you were on furlough or you were able to work from home, you didn't spend that much. You managed to pay off your debts. You managed to put some money into savings. So it has been quite good. I think going forward um, this year, next year, people are worried. They are worried about inflation. They don't know how long it's going to be there. They don't know how much it's going to increase by. Everything's very uncertain. And of course, you know, the government's already starting to flap the cushions and saying they're gonna grab some money back from us in probably stealth taxes. I mean, it's going to be you know, taxes in some sort of a way. So people are concerned at the moment. There, there is more activity, much more activity, certainly. And that's, of course, one of the reasons why we have inflation. But it's there's, there's a nervousness. Nobody really knows what's going to happen next. Yeah, the world's changed just like in 2008, which is a good time to be writing the, the blog that you do because you can help people with, with what's shifting and changing. And I think now's the sort of time when people are waking up and, and realizing they need to figure things out. Uh, and, and they go to moneybankpie.com to figure them out. Um, <laughs> let's move on to the topic that I, I straight away wanted to chat to you about. Um, this is the one that I'm personally most interested in. And it's the idea that everything has become financialized. All sort of segments of our world have become financialized. For me, the most obvious example of that is when I go into a shop to buy furniture or white goods or whatever it might be, the, the financing terms that those things can be bought on seem to dominate the actual purchasing decision. You know, the advertising for the, for the, for the financing and the interest is bigger than the, the actual advertising for the sofa or the white goods. And that's been around for quite a long time. In Australia, it's a lot worse than, than the UK, actually, but it's the same sort of thing. I had a reader, uh, reader email in about this issue saying, you know, the price of oil went negative, interest rates went negative. There's all of these bizarre things going on in the world that are all part of this financialization of everything. The gold investors like to talk about the futures dominating the gold price. It's another example. Yeah. It just seems to me that, that Financial markets just seem to rule our world so directly now, uh, and and I'm getting sort of a bit a bit scared of it because they're not exactly the sort of place that you want to have ruling, you know, your your day to day life. No, I agree, and and you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about say the 90s and the early, but basically before before the financial crash, the banks certainly in this country, probably in America and Australia as well. Um, we're kind of doing the same sort of thing. You know, you, you would walk into a bank uh, back when we walked into banks in, on high streets. And, and the first thing you would have would be somebody at the door going, hello, have you thought of life insurance? You know, and, and of course, that we had the mis-selling of PPI, um, payment protection insurance. So you would go for a loan and they go, yeah, you can have a loan. Anyway, what you really need is payment protection insurance because, you know, low loans. And and it is absolutely, as you say, it was the case. Now we had, that was a mis-selling scandal. It all went horribly wrong. You know, banks have had to pay millions and millions in compensation over a few years. Um, and, and every time you have that sort of thing, 
ultimately, I mean, it'll last for quite a while, and that, but then ultimately some pressure groups get so strong, they go, no, seriously, this is wrong, it all falls apart. So I think it will fall apart. Here, um, and again, I'm sure in America, we have uh, buy now, pay later. Um, there's a Swedish company, Klarna, which is doing very well. And of course, lots of others are following, PayPal's doing it, buy now, pay later. And you see posters all over the place, particularly for fast fashion, ASOS, Boohoo, that, and there are big signs on the posters going, have it now, have it now for free, pay it for it later, you know. So you've got Klarna essentially piggybacking on, on Boohoo and ASOS on their advertising. So yeah, I think that's a very, very good point. And it's not one that I'd thought about recently, but you're right, everything is financialized. It's like, give us the money, insurance, and have this, you know, and then, oh yeah, the actual asset. Yeah, you can have that if you want, yeah, whatever. <laughs> the biggest example that, that's taking over in the UK right now is, is this, this pensions idea, this opt-out pensions, where, you know, a chunk of our paychecks being taken automatically and, and getting shifted off to these, to, to financial markets, to, to financial funds and fund managers. Nobody really understands what they're doing. Nobody really follows it or cares or pays attention. And, and this just, you know, that is the money that's supposed to go to securing your retirement. And what strikes me about this is it's the exact opposite mentality that I think you're, you're putting forward, where it's take responsibility for, for what's going on in your financial life, whereas the government's saying, don't worry about it, you know, we've sorted it out for you. And I think that that difference is, and that gap is really interesting. So um, yeah. do, do you think, what, what do you think people should be doing? Do you think they should be paying attention to people like you who are, who are trying to shake them and say, you've got to get this sorted? Or do you think they should believe the politicians that you know the pension funds have got their back? Ooh, tricky question. Should they? Mm, should, I think they should believe me, Nick, actually, <laughs> given, given what history has shown us. And to be frank, given, given what um, governments in the last 18 months have been doing and saying, um, I mean, I was brought up you know, to, to be law abiding and, and support the government and whatever. And in the last 18 months, first time in my life, really properly, I've thought, right, that's it. You know, I'm, honestly, guys, I've had it with you lot. <laughs> I've had it with you lot. Um, but yes, when it comes to your money, um, one thing that does concern me um, about pensions, particularly in pension funds, is the fact that they are, it seems to me, so invested in bonds at the, at the moment. And the bond market is worrying. You know, it, it worries me. I mean, I'm not a bond specialist at all, but everything I've heard about is like, I wouldn't touch them. You know, bonds, get, I wouldn't go near them. And, and and I keep thinking, who's putting them? Well, it's, it's pension funds, pension funds. Now that to me is a bit worrying, honestly. Yeah, there's a, it's this uh, mindset. It's also regulatory. We've discussed some of the incentives um, behind this bizarre situation in the bond markets where the interest people are earning on the bonds are ridiculously low, especially adjusted for the inflation that you and I have discussed. The whole thing doesn't make sense. Part of that story is the idea of financial repression. The idea that the government's in so much debt that the only way to escape that much debt is to have inflation above interest rates, which reduces the, the, the debt burden. The problem is that effectively taxes by the back door in secret ways, the bondholders, which is our pension funds. So I think the story there is that the government's putting its own finances ahead of um, the investors and, and we should be keeping that in mind. 
Yes, we, we should. You know, increasingly, I, I do feel that when it comes to pensions, we individually do need to take a lot more control. I mean, I tend to talk about retirement funds rather than pensions, because pensions are just one of the things that you can put your money into. There are a lot of advantages, tax advantages, etc. So, you know, it's a nice one. And I always tell people if you've got, if you're employed, unlike me, if you are actually employed, um, you've got a nice employer giving you money into your pension, max it out. But then, you know, we need to know where that money is. And, and ultimately, I think people should have their own SIP and their own ISAs and their own all sorts of investments, frankly. That's what I do. So it's across a range of things. Um, and then you, you personally have more control and, and more safety, frankly. What are the top mistakes that people who come to your blog look, look for help for? What are the things that they're doing wrong most commonly? Well, uh, one of our most popular articles is called Help, I'm 50 with no savings. What do I do? <laughs> so I would say, you know, one, one of the, the biggest problems for certainly people in this country is that they they don't save. They haven't saved for various reasons. Um, and much of the time it's because they didn't know that they should and they didn't realise that if they could just they could just put a tenner away each month when they're in their 20s and that would actually make a difference in the long term the other thing um and i this was this came out very much in the uh, retirement survey great retirement survey is that people don't take risks um they don't understand risk they don't understand the relationship between risk and reward and in this country we have this sense really that the only thing the stock market does is crash um that therefore you know you mustn't touch the stock market because it's very risky it's terrible all it does is crash you've got to be safe and put your money into savings accounts and yeah okay there, there was a time when i remember you know just before the crash um in 2008 you could get six percent um with savings accounts but mostly on average they've been pretty pathetic and and so People have done that. They've put their money into cash ISAs. They've put the money into savings. Maybe property. That's the other thing we do: savings and property and premium bonds. Those those are the only things that people put money into really in this country. And then they've realised after a couple of decades that damn, they should have they should or tr three decades should have put it into you know a tracker fund or just some sort of stock market fund because they've realised that those who did actually have done really nicely over the time. So I think, you know, the, the risk element is, is a big one for everybody in this country. We need to understand that, that risk isn't what it sounds like. Yeah, and that highlights that growing divergence we mentioned earlier between the haves and the have-nots. So if you have saved and you have invested, you know, you're well diverged completely from the people who haven't. Absolutely. How do you go about motivating people to, to do these things, to understand this risk and return trade-off and, and actually put that money away and actually put it to work? Well, good point, because, you know, um, all the time that I've been a financial journalist, I started it off, actually, I started being a financial journalist end of the 90s when I was just working, I was freelance, I've always been freelance, so I say, um, working in the BBC business unit, and I was reading this stuff and thinking, gosh, this isn't, this isn't hard, this, this money stuff, it's just know common sense how come I didn't know and I I realized well nobody taught me nobody ever taught me how to manage my money um and so I thought to myself well I'll, 
I'll make it fun. I'll, I'll make it enjoyable. I'll make it simple so that people like me, I did an English degree, you know, I, I have no maths background. I'm not, I'm not a clever economist like you. Um, and, but most people in this country aren't. We're very innumerate as a country. So I just decided that I'll make it fun, I'll make it interesting. So um, I actually do, I do webinars and I do live shows when, when you do live shows that are kind of semi-comedy shows because I have a background as a, as a stand-up comedian. And so I put lots of jokes in, I make it fun and, you know, just sort of chatty. I, I used um, fluffy bunnies to explain compound interest. I get people up from the audience in, in live shows. Um, I make it sort of solid you have to make things as as um substantial as something that you can get your hands around like as i say tins of baked beans you know to explain it in really really basic terms that as i say people like me can can listen to and go oh yeah i get that oh yeah yeah and actually that's quite funny and oh look i've just learned something <laughs> so that's how we do it and and same with the articles uh with the podcast we do webinars um just and, and, and constantly bringing it down to normal conversation, normal words, normal phrases that normal people would use. And our investing um, articles are very much aimed at people who know nothing, which I know is about 90% of this country. So, you know, I've got a nice big audience there potentially. Let's turn to the issue of debt. We've been focusing on savings and investing um, and, and making money, but I think for a lot of people, the big issue in their life is this issue of debt. And um, well, I don't know where to start because to me, the, the, the real story is that they've been tricked into borrowing too much mm -hmm. with excessively lower interest rates to try and stimulate the economy. So as far as the central bankers are concerned and the government to some extent, borrowing equates to economic growth. And that's why they use interest rates to try and spur on the economy because the interest rates affect how much people borrow. Right. So on the one hand, there's this unfairness of what's been done to people. And on the other hand, you know, if you borrow money, it is your responsibility. And there's this idea that you've got to pay it back before you're going to get anywhere in terms of savings and investing. Where do you lie in terms of that? Is, is it sort of the individual's responsibility and you just need to, to get at it? Or do you think you know, the situation is deeply unfair? Well, yeah, a bit of both, to be honest, because, you know, as, as I was saying, in this country, we are, we, we know nothing much about money, and it, it hasn't improved over time. I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years, and in all that time, I've been saying, we need financial education at schools, we need financial education at schools, and I'm not the only one, everybody's saying it, and yet I now have um, I've got a 24-year-old working for me, um, for example, she's just recently started, and she said, that until she started working with, with me, she didn't realize what really how pensions worked or mortgages or savings or anything like that because she wasn't taught. Now, you would have thought that by now they would have been being taught. So it, it's not a level playing field. Um, essentially, I think in this country, we, we are children in our knowledge of finances. And yet we have these dangerous financial products given to us credit cards you know that's a dangerous it's like giving sharp knives to people you know if you if you know how to use it it's very useful if you don't it's a real problem um and we're supposed to manage our pensions and i do think that we should we're supposed to understand mortgages and and investing you know so in theory yeah absolutely ultimately the buck stops with us we have to have individual responsibility 
but you need to have the knowledge um, in order to do that. Um, and it's simply not fair to say to people, well, it's your fault, you know, that we gave you the pension. How, how are we to, to have to run it for you? I mean, yeah, okay, we're running it for you, but you should have looked. You should, of course people aren't going to look, goodness sake, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's the awkwardness of the situation. And I was chuckling to myself then, because I was thinking of, you know, all the other things that we learn in school that are actually useful. Imagine if we weren't taught those things, how we'd go about living our life. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of disasters out there in terms of you know, if we weren't taught certain things. Uh, and yet, as you say, this financial education issue, which I think is international, hasn't, just hasn't played out. I don't think there's any particular country that's doing a good job on this, which is shocking. Um, and and it's, it's a bizarre situation. Yeah. Let's move on to what might happen if interest rates go up which is currently the big concern, uh, especially in the UK, but also parts of Eastern Europe. Um, the idea that we've had this, this downtrend in interest rates since the 80s, which has triggered people to borrow more and more money and increase their amount of debt. And now all of a sudden that might, that might reverse and we're in all of this debt and interest rates are about to go up. Do you think we're in for a bit of a, a nightmare? Potentially, yes, yes, I think we are. Of course, at the moment, the economy is so weak. We, we are, I mean, you and I have talked about, you know, different delicious types of inflation that one could actually enjoy. Um, and one of them, I think the main one um, that we are in at the moment is stagflation. Um, so we do, although, as I said, there, there is a lot more um, movement, it's not enough, really. We, we are still relatively stagnant economy. Um, so, you know, I think it's difficult for the for the Bank of England. They have created this cleft stick for themselves. They need to in, increase interest rates to, to curb inflation. But at the same time, they've got to support the economy. Um, so if they do put it up and they are saying, that, you know, that day, the observers are saying that they will. Um, I think it's going to be a very small amount. I think, it, you know, it's going to be incremental tiny bits, you know, which I think if that does happen, that'll make it a little easier. People can gradually get used to it. But as you say, individuals have borrowed insane amounts of money, you know, to buy a, 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 just a flat in London, you're looking at at least £400,000, at least. Um, in fact, I'm trying to think, where can you get anything for £400,000? But, you know, it, it, it's a ridiculous amount. And wages have not increased that much in this country over the last 20 years or so. They really haven't. Um, so people are insanely overborrowed for, for mortgages, particularly. And, you know, in, in other areas, of this, I mean, business borrowing is, is quite high, I think, because, as you say, um, interest rates have been so low. So, it, you know, all we need is, is a, a bit of a maybe half a percent rather than a quarter of a percent rise. And suddenly people are going to go, oh, you know, I, I can't I can't manage it. We're going to have foreclosures, etc. So, uh, you know, I, I would say that, that the Bank of England needs to do things very, very gradually if they're going to. But I, I don't know what they're what's what's in their thinking at the moment. And we don't know what shocks are going to come from absolutely nowhere, because that's what concerns me. When, when you're in a vulnerable position financially, all you need is one thing just completely from left field and uh, you know everything collapses. Let's continue on with the topic of unaffordable property that you've just raised. Mm -hmm. I was listening to an interview with a hedge fund manager called Kyle Bass and his argument was that in China, they've basically discovered that as property becomes extremely unaffordable, 
that completely upsets the balance in society. And the example he gave was that it becomes a demographic issue where young men can't afford to buy property, so they don't start families, so the birth rate collapses. Uh, and there's all sorts of similar you know, consequences from the fact that people can't afford to, to buy. In the UK, in the US and Australia, the consequence is how much debt we've taken on. Mm. Do you think that you know, there's this issue of, of, well, first of all, do you agree? Has there been a, a real impact in terms of how we live our lives because of the unaffordable property? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Yes. And, and that has certainly impacted on family size um, because, you know, even if you're, if you're married, if you're living with somebody, you've got two incomes coming in. In London, certainly in the South, you still can't afford a good place to live. You might afford a one bed flat, maybe two if you're lucky, but you have to move right out in order to have children. You know, you have to kind of decide, do I want to live in town or do I want children? You know, end of. Um, and it has meant um, it's, it's affected women's lives, particularly. I mean, you're talking about men. Absolutely. Um, in this country, certainly um, women have, again, had to decide, am I going to have a career or am I going to have children? because you, you just can't do the two and have somewhere to live as well. We have many more people, families renting now, which is, you know, not, not a bad thing in parts of Europe, as you know. I mean, you grew up in Germany, um, Germans rent, you know, and that's, uh, there are a lot of very good reasons to rent, particularly if you have rent controls, which we don't really in this country. Um, but, you know, culturally in, in Britain, you need to buy your house you know if you if you don't own your own home then you kind of miss the boat you haven't quite you know achieved etc cetera, etc cetera. so yeah it, it it does have um a, an effect and i'm glad to hear that the chinese have, have realized that maybe they'll change a few things. Well, it could trigger that left field economic shock uh, if uh, if carl bass is right so uh, i don't know if you should be so glad about it but uh, at least it's an interesting lesson in trade-offs which is i think what all of this is about yeah the other angle of that that fascinates me is that we've gone I don't know if this is true, but as I see it, we've gone from a society where uh, the, the children take care of their parents in retirement to the parents in retirement helping their children to buy property. So it's it's a totally bizarre world where you know, a huge of that amount of that, that pension money or that retirement money is going to come from highly inflated property, but that's really just a transfer of wealth from the old people. And so I'm really worried about the property price obsession that uh, people in the Western world have. And I say that I'm in Japan right now, and I, I say that you know, coming from a, a place where that reversed and property prices are now extremely cheap, apart from in, in certain key cities. And society's done just fine. You know, we, it, it hasn't been some sort of devastating crisis apart from that initial crash. So I wonder, do you think it's better for property prices to fall or rise in terms of, you know, once you include all of the different impacts and factors? Oh, definitely for them to fall. And I, I speak as one who have, um, has reluctantly has a second uh, property trying to get rid of it at the moment. Um, but no, I do. There, it, it's sort of an ossification that, that we see in people's lives and, and in the economy um, when you have this huge obsession of, of trying to, to get hundreds of thousands of pounds to buy a place and, and that's going to be kind of the rest of your life that you're you're trying to pay it off. We, we have large amounts now of retired people still having a mortgage, which is which is a crazy thing. Actually, um, as you're talking, another uh, pressure, as you know, is, of course, people living longer. And I was thinking, as you say, there are retired people paying 
for their, their children to, to buy a place. But also we have retired people who are retired for much, much longer than, than they used to be. And they're using up the money that used to be handed over to, to the next generation. So I think that's that's a consideration as well, that, that the young people and if you like middle-aged people can't assume now that they will be getting an inheritance because um, their parents may have to use it all up in care homes and equity release potentially. Let's move on to an uh, unusual topic. I don't know if you know much about cryptocurrencies, but I was excited about them initially because it allowed just about anyone or mm. any community to issue their own currency with mm. a set of rules that govern that currency. Mm-hmm. And that boom is starting to take hold now. Yeah. My dad just sent me a, a, a 25, I think it was dollar or pound voucher from an example of this where a, a group of people who like to travel a lot they have launched their own currency that works on their website where you can book these trips and you can earn that currency by leaving reviews about places or, or making videos to show people what it's like or that sort of thing. Do you think there's going to be a, a bit of a revolution in terms of how we how we use money as a result of cryptocurrencies? A bit like uh, the, the community currencies that used to pop up in small towns that tried to keep, you know, commerce within that town you know, to get people to buy from the local farmers. They had a, a community currency from that local area. Do you think the same thing's going to happen with cryptocurrencies? Well, yes and no. I'm actually a fan of cryptocurrency um, too. In fact, I, I give, uh, I do webinars on on how to invest in cryptocurrency. Again, very, the most basic first first steps. Um, and I've always been excited by them. I started investing in Bitcoin in 2017. That was when I, I really under well, I, I say understand. I'm not sure if one ever quite understands, you know, how cryptocurrencies work. But um, yeah, I, I, I'm interested in all sorts. And I am like you, I was excited and still am at the idea that individuals or groups can set up their own currency. I keep thinking about setting up my own magpies, you know. Um, what concerns me, though, um, and, and we're seeing it happen in spades now, is that once the establishment get into it, that just ruins everything. And, you know, Bitcoin, as, as I'm sure you know, absolutely rocketed um, in the last few days because of the company ProShares, which came out with its first ETF that, that tracks Bitcoin. And that apparently that got, was it three billion? In, oh, billions in three days or something insane. Um, you know, once once they get their hands on it, that basically ruins it. And even worse, I mean, screamingly worse, in my view, is governments getting their hands and going, oh, let's let's do our own cryptocurrency. No, no, I know it's going, no, not you particularly. So, I, I mean, I'm shouting at the moment against CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, because as far as I'm concerned, that's, that's the end of civilization, literally the end of civilization as we know it today, um, because it's governments taking all the good stuff from cryptocurrencies. I mean, particularly um, smart contracts that you get with Ethereum, um, where you can just make the money do certain things and you can disappear the money and you can say, you, you know, you have to spend it within two weeks or it'll just disappear. You know, all of this. And that that should go through central banks, i.e. governments, that they should know everything you're earning, when you've earned it, how you've earned it, where you've earned it from, tax you at source, and then tell you when and where you can spend your money. I just think, shut up, I will not allow any of that. So 
you know, again, I think cryptocurrencies are sharp knives. Um, used properly, excellent. Put in the wrong hands, CCP, any other government, frankly. No, nightmare, absolute nightmare. I'm fascinated by this because I've said this in the past, and of course it got me lots of bad feedback from my friends and colleagues, let alone the readers who are big cryptocurrency fans. My argument was, or the way that I explained it was that, you know, back in the day, Airbnb and Uber popped up and they were basically skirting the government regulations. They took on the taxi industry and the hotel industry, which are extremely close to governments, um, you know, in terms of all the taxes they pay and the licensing fees and all these sorts of things. And Uber and Airbnb came along and said, we're not going to do any of that. And our service is going to be cheaper and better as a result. And it worked. And over time, the government and the regulatory state has sort of co-opted those two companies into becoming sort of friends with, with the government and, and actually paying some of the license fees and doing more and more regulatory things with the government and, and putting up with regulations and complying with the sorts of things that taxi drivers have to. And you know, now they're, they're just not innovative and, and they're no better than we had things originally. Uh, and lots of you know, hotels uh, advertise on, on Airbnb or lots of holiday rental properties. And, and that tells you that they've lost the whole, what the whole point of the story was. And so I think the same thing is happening with cryptocurrencies now. The way I put it is they've, they've lost their soul. The mm -hmm. whole point was that they were against the establishment, exactly. against the government, against Wall Street and the city. And now they've just become completely a part of that whole little world. The best example is that ETF that you mentioned, which is based on Bitcoin futures, not on Bitcoin. So there's no actual Bitcoin involved, which is just a great example of the financialization of everything. Even cryptocurrencies have been financialized by the city. We've got to end on something good. We've got to end on something positive. Give, give me sort of the best idea in terms of the money making, money saving and money managing, um, the, the three tabs on your website. What's the best idea that you can think of for each one? Well, I always enjoy talking about making money because there are so many really fun ways. Side, there are so many side earners that, that I, I like to talk about. I mean, an obvious one, I was just talking about this last night um, to somebody who was retired and wondering what to do, how to make some money. I said, go and do some extra work, be a walk-on. I used to do walk-on work. It's great. You get paid a hundred pounds a day to basically sit around. They give you lovely food and uh, you know you can do it anywhere pretty much as long as you're sort of near somewhere where they're filming. And then we have all sorts of other daft ways of making money like being a professional mourner. That's quite an Asian idea or Middle Eastern, but it's come to this country as well. So there are some places where you can do that. You can sell your hair. Um, you can, of course, there are um, focus groups, and you know where you can say your what, what you think and everything. Um, but there are there are so many daft, daft ways to 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 sell things. Um, you know, you can even sell toilet roll innards. There, people do sell those on on eBay, and um, parents and and art teachers buy them for you know fun things for the kids to do. Um, so there's always always a way to make extra cash. It doesn't matter what you're doing, whether if you're disabled, if you're if you're stuck at Home, there are always ways to make extra money on, on the side. That's what my big mantra. And then when it comes to saving money, um, what again, I have this mantra, which is pay yourself first. I'm a big fan of standing orders. And, and when I do talks on how to manage your money, one of the big things I say is pay yourself first. Set up a standing order at the beginning of the month into, from your account into a savings and you know, into savings and into investments, of course, um, so that the money goes out before you then spend it on the, the supermarkets and the, the restaurants and the, whatever 
whatever because people always say oh, I don't have any money left at the end of the month and I'm like nobody has money left at the end of the month it's you know it's a human thing you, you've got the money yes spend it so you have to do it at the beginning before you start spending it and then when it comes to to investing um, I'm a, a big fan, you know, whatever age you are starting to invest and it can be small amounts of money. Um, and what I say to people is, again, my big mantra for, for investing is spread your bets. Nothing is safe as houses, even houses are not safe as houses. So a little bit here, a little bit there. Start with a bit of stock market within an, an ISA. I would say tracker funds because they're cheap and easy. Um, and uh, I'm also a fan of, of some of the peer-to-peer -peer, um, platforms. You get better money there, but a little bit here, a little bit there. And even collections, and I was explaining this yesterday about collections in my view are an asset class. And when I say collections, you know, obviously art and antiques, also Barbie dolls, um, Lego, um, Hermes handbags, some of these have done phenomenally well over the last uh, 10 years. So, so, you know, have another look at the collections, whatever it is you collect. It could be that those are actually one of your best investments. You never, never know. <laughs> yeah, especially during the age of money printing and QE and all that, those collections, anything tangible can perform extremely well. So um, to sum up, where can people go to find out more about you and Money Magpie if they're the tabs are, I'm going to read them out, parents, students, unemployed, over 50s or professionals. If you want to save money, make money or invest money, where do you? It is moneymagpie.com. And do sign up to the newsletters. We've got a, um, a fortnightly investing newsletter. It goes out every Saturday. We've got one coming out this weekend. And um, we've also got a, a Tuesday newsletter, which has all sorts of, of information on saving, making, managing your money, plus podcasts, plus webinars, plus oh, all sorts we have. <laughs> Excellent. Jasmine Bertels, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you.